The epistle for this Feast of All Saints is taken from the book of the Apocalypse. In those days, behold, I, John, saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the sign of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Do not hurt the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, till we sign the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of them that were signed, a hundred and forty-four thousands were signed, of every tribe of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Aser, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Nephali, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Manasseh, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Simeon, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Levi, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Issachar, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Zabalon, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Joseph, twelve thousand signed, of the tribe of Benjamin, twelve thousand signed. After this I saw a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and in sight of the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and the ancients, and the four living creatures. And they fell down before the throne upon their faces, and adored God, saying, Amen. Benediction, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, honor, and power, and strength to our God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand for the gospel. The Gospel is taken from the fifth chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. At that time, Jesus, seeing the multitudes, went up into a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came unto him. And opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. To your reverend Father, dear faithful, on this Feast of All Saints, we contemplate the saints who teach us to remain in tradition, to do the very same thing they did to become saints. We are repeating the same rites, the same gestures. We recite the same prayers. We believe in the same perennial catechism which they believed in. That is what made them get to heaven. These are the words spoken by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre 40 years ago, 1980, on the Feast of All Saints. And they indicate why we celebrate this feast. Why do we have this special ceremony in their honor? Why do we have the children dress up, choose a saint and dress up? like that saint might have dressed. 
It's because when we look at the whole history of the world and all the people who have ever lived in this world, we single out the saints as those who have lived their lives the most perfectly. They had the best life that can possibly be lived. And as a result, they are our heroes, and we want to be like them. They accomplished, above all, the one thing necessary in this life, and that is that we save our souls. What does it profit a man, says our Lord, if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? Or what exchange shall a man give for his soul? The answer, of course, is that nothing will be of any use to you if you gain the whole world and yet you lose your soul. Whatever you exchange for your soul, whatever it might be, the exchange will definitely be bad. If you give your soul for honor, for instance, or a certain fame, or for money, or for pleasure, or for glory, whatever it is, you barter for your immortal soul. It's going to be a bad deal. You're going to be misguided in making such a deal. In the end, there's really only one thing that you have to accomplish in this life, and that is you have to become a saint. You have to save your soul. You have to make it to heaven. If you do nothing else, and yet you do that, your life has been fruitful. The Archbishop, in that quote that I gave you, he indicates to us how we are to go about saving our souls. We look at the saints. We see what they did. And we try to imitate to them. We ask ourselves, what did they believe? What were the truths of the faith that they held on to them? We believe the same things. We ask ourselves, how did they worship God? In what way did they give glory to God? We try to give glory to God in the same way. We believe what they believe, the same truths that have been passed on from generation to generation since our Lord. And we have to reject anything that is contrary to that faith, anything that is against that faith. We have to believe all the truths that are contained in the Apostles' Creed without exception. Those truths and only those truths. We have to engage in the same worship that made the saints holy. We have to participate in a Mass that truly represents our Catholic faith, a Mass like the one we are assisting at right now, this Mass that has been in almost exactly the same form for the past 1,400 years, been giving glory to God and been sanctifying so many of the heroes of our faith. To save our souls, we have to have the same faith we have to have the same worship that was given to us by our Lord, has been passed through the ages. And when these things are changed, nothing less than our eternal salvation or our eternal damnation is at stake. That's exactly what's at stake in what we believe and how we worship God. It was this question of the salvation of souls that caused Archbishop Lefebvre to become a missionary in Africa. He left his homeland, and he brought the Catholic faith to far-flung areas of French-speaking Africa. He was in Gabon, he was in Senegal, he was in Chad, he was in Madagascar, in, in other countries, in all the, the region of, of French-speaking Africa. And we can ask ourselves, I mean, he was, he was there for, for decades, 
you'd say, how many, how many souls did the archbishop save in all of his missionary labors in that time he spent in the African continent? I don't know how many, of course. I can't put a number on it, but I think it was probably in the thousands. There were many, many souls the archbishop was able to bring to the faith during his time in Africa. When he was chosen to be a bishop, he wanted the words of St. John to be his episcopal motto, Credidimus Caritate. We have believed in the love that God has for us. It was this love of God that, that fueled Archbishop Lefebvre's missionary charity and caused him to work so hard for decades for the salvation of the souls of so many Africans. But it turned out that even unexpectedly for the Archbishop himself, that it was not until after the Second Vatican Council that God especially wanted to make use of Archbishop Lefebvre as an instrument for this supreme work of the salvation of souls. As you know, the Council, the Second Vatican Council, was perhaps the event in the history of the Church that has caused the greatest destruction of souls. We mentioned to you how necessary it is to hold on to the Catholic faith if you want to save your soul. And that's precisely what didn't happen after the Council. So many hundreds of thousands of Catholics left the faith, and of those who remained, most of them fell into a heresy of one form or another. And this problem, this very grave problem, continues to this day. If we take the statistics today, there's just one in one in three American Catholics do not believe that our Lord is truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. 76% of American Catholics believe that birth control is acceptable. 59% think that women should be ordained priests. In France, the situation is even worse. Only 12% of French Catholics believe that hell exists and only 7% believe that Catholicism is the one true faith coming from our Lord. And this is very, very grave. Meanwhile, if we look at the statistics for traditional Catholics, there's almost 100% of traditional Catholics believe these truths or reject those corresponding errors. It makes a very big difference as to um, what, how you worship as to how you will believe. Meanwhile, we know that there have to be priests and nuns in the church for people to be brought to the faith and for people to sustain their faith. If you don't have priests and nuns around, people are going to lose the faith. There's going to be a lot of people who lose the faith. But the post-Vatican II era has been absolutely and utterly disastrous for vocations. In the last 50 years, if we, if we go back to about 1970 or 1972, over 57,000 priests have asked for laicization and have left the priesthood. But there's many more. There's thousands more who did not actually go through the official process and apply to Rome for laicization. And, and we, we, we can only make estimates of how many priests ultimately left the priesthood in the past 50 years. It's probably between 80,000 and 100,000 priests. The number of sisters in that time went down by over 100,000 in the world and the number of seminarians has gone down by 90% in the world. So we're at a point right now in 2020 where we're able to look back at the statistics and see 
with concrete facts what a disaster the council was for the church and correspondingly for the salvation of souls. How many souls have been lost because of this radical experiment and revolution in the church attempting to conform the church to the modern world? But just as we're able to look back in retrospect at those statistics and see what a disaster that has been, we're also able to see how providential was the work that God called Archbishop Lefebvre to do right after the council ended in 1970. As you probably know, although the society was founded after the council, it already existed in the mind of the archbishop when he was in Africa. He, he talks about this, this episode, this, this event that occurred to him and which, which really struck him. It was, it was a very great grace for him. He was, he was in 1958 and he was in his, um, archiepiscopal see in Dakar in Senegal. You know, this is one of these French speaking African countries. So that was, that was his residence. He was the archbishop there in Dakar and he was praying in his cathedral before the Blessed Sacrament. And all of a sudden, there's this grace that came over him, this great desire, which he even called a dream, to found an order for the restoration of the Catholic priesthood, to found an order where priests would be formed in the traditional spirit of the church. He himself speaks of that dream in the following words. The dream was to transmit the Catholic priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of its doctrinal purity in all of its missionary charity, just as he conferred it upon his apostles, just as the Roman Church always transmitted it until the middle of the 20th century. So the Archbishop had this dream of giving priests to the Church for the salvation of souls, and he wanted his priests to have two characteristics. First of all, missionary charity. The same desire that he had to go around the world and bring souls to God, to lead souls to heaven, to provide for the salvation of souls. He wanted to form priests who would have a real zeal for souls. Then secondly, doctrinal purity. He wanted to have a group of priests who would be known for their orthodoxy, who would be known for passing on the faith exactly as it has always been believed, the same truths that were given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, those same truths that are necessary for the salvation of souls. We can say that the Archbishop was something of a Thomistic missionary. He, he had that heart of the missionary on the one hand, and on the other hand, he had the doctrinal purity of, of a Thomist. It was that missionary heart that led him to found his own order of priests and nuns, and it was the doctrinal purity that led him to hold on to tradition when a revolution against tradition was raging throughout the church. And as we know, 50 years ago, that dream of the Archbishop became true when uh, Bishop Francois Charrier of uh, the Diocese of Fribourg, Switzerland, he signed a decree erecting the Society of St. Pius X as a pious union of priests. The Archbishop speaks about that date. He says, that date of November the 1st, 1970, is to my mind an event of great importance in our history. It was the day that saw the official birth of the society. It was the church which brought it into the world that day. The society is a work of the church. From that day, graces have been flowing from the church. That's the only 
source of, of the graces that, that come to souls ultimately. They've been flowing from the church into the society and from there have been communicated to souls. And what has been the result? Has it been something good for souls? Has it borne supernatural fruits? Are there souls in heaven today because of what the archbishop did? And I believe that, that we can look back and, and affirm in, in retrospect that the archbishop saved more souls through his founding of the society, even then he saved during his missionary years in Africa. I think there's several reasons for this. First of all, there were decades when many Catholics had nowhere to turn but to the Society of St. Pius X as a refuge for their faith. As I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of people became disenchanted with their faith after the Second Vatican Council in the 1970s and the 1980s, and they left the church. They were completely disoriented. They were turned off by the new liturgy and these, these new beliefs, this lack of orthodoxy. And during that time, the, the Society of St. Pius X was like a refu refugee camp for so many, um, for, for people who were looking for some sort of sanity some sort of refuge from the craziness going on in the church. And through the society, they were able to come back to the practice of their faith. Secondly, the work of Archbishop Lefebvre in founding the society has consistently grown in numbers and has spread around the world in the past half century. And since I'm a priest of the Society of St. Pius X, I've been able to go around the world and, and see it. I mean, the society is currently in 72 different countries around the world. I think I've been, I've seen its work in probably 16 of, of those countries. Um, and there are about 800 mass centers around the world. There's 672 priests, 138 brothers, 72 oblates, and 108 89 seminarians, and if we, if we rank the society among all the male orders in the church, currently the society is number 39 in, in size among all the male religious orders in the church, the masculine orders. Um, the Fraternity of St. Peter is number 83, and the Institute of Christ the King is 118. And so this, this growth and extension of the society um, is, is certainly a sign of God's blessing upon the work of the archbishop, but it's also extraordinary when you consider all of the bad press that the society has received in the past 50 years. There have been so many attempts to suppress it or um, drastically limit its work. We can say today in 2020 that the work of the archbishop has been tried and it has stood the test of time increasing linearly over the past 50 years when so many other order, orders have been dying in that same time. It had been going through a statistical freefall. It's hard to say uh, exactly how many faithful there are who attend our chapels around the world. Um, I think that, I mean, sometimes you see the estimate of half, half a million people. I think that's probably um, exaggerated, probably not that many people. Um, but, but even if it's only 100,000 people, that's certainly an awful lot of souls who are benefiting from the work the Archbishop did on behalf of the Church. 
Thirdly, the third thing that we can, we can say is that maybe the, the Archbishop um, has affected more souls in a positive way through the founding of the society than his missionary work in Africa is when we just simply look at all the traditional Catholics that there are in the world today and see what a debt they owe to the Archbishop, no matter what their affiliation is in the traditionalist camp. The, the vast majority of traditional Catholics today rely upon what the Archbishop did in the 70s and the 80s, and especially his perseverance in his work. For instance, because of the Archbishop, there have been priests coming here to the Denver area since 1992. And there were, there were even priests before that who uh, were ordained by the Archbishop. They ended up leaving the society, but um, still, they were ordained by the Archbishop and obviously would not have been here if it weren't for him. We can say that definitely this church and, and our school would not exist today if it had not been for the Archbishop. And the other Latin Mass communi communities that are around would likely not exist if or not for the Archbishop. We know the Fraternity of St. Peter, for instance, was founded because Rome wanted to take in the refugees from the society, people, uh, society priests who did not like the Archbishop going through with the consecrations. Um, Rome wanted to provide a vehicle for, for them, and that was why the fraternity was, was founded when, before that, Rome was not really so willing to establish a Latin mass communities in the church. Um, and really, I mean, even if, if the other Latin mass groups that have been founded in, in the past, I don't know, 30 years, even if they didn't come from the society, ultimately they profited from the society because, as I say, Rome wanted to draw people away from the Society of St. Pius X. So the fact that Rome even wanted to manage the traditionalist phenomenon is due to the perseverance of the Archbishop. Rome would have been very happy to, to see this movement die because uh, the Archbishop did not stop in his effort to promote traditionalism. It did not die, and uh, Rome had to do damage control. And as you know, I mean, the universal permission for the Latin Mass that exists today exists because of a request made by the priest of the Society of St. Pius X. And we have this extraordinary phenomenon today in, in 2020 where we're somehow in the church, the Latin Mass is the end thing. The Latin Mass is, and traditionalism has suddenly somehow become hip in the church. Um, it's, it's definitely a thing. There's, there's a lot of youth who are, are very interested in tradition. It's, it's growing in popularity. It's growing in momentum while the Novus Ordo dies more and more. And this just simply would, would not have, would not have been expected, um, if we had tried to predict what, what the church would look like in, in 2020. Um, and, and if that is the case today, and it's a very positive phenomenon, and we, we ourselves are, are very happy to see the, the spread, this is why we, we made this request for the universal liberation of the Mass. Um, if it exists today, if we have this, we may say, unexpected popularity of traditionalism in 2020, it has to be ultimately attributed to the fight of Archbishop Marcelo Fed. So my dear faithful, at the end of the day, Archbishop Lefebvre is the focal point for whatever access people around the world have to the traditional teachings of the church and the traditional liturgy of the church. 
And having access to that teaching and that liturgy is absolutely crucial for saving one's soul. It is very difficult to do so without them. It's not impossible to do it without them, but it's very difficult to do so without them. Does that make the archbishop a saint? Well, I would not be so imprudent as, as to proclaim that from the pulpit. That's not for me to decide. That is for the church to decide. But what I do say is that it has made for the salvation of an awful lot of souls. And that is why we are here to celebrate this feast today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.